0: That was a little bit of Joyride, the title track and the opening track from the new album by John Raymond and Real Feels. That's a meteorological term, by the way, Real Feels, not feels in the social media sense like, that cat video gave me all the feels. The group is a trio. Raymond plays flugelhorn, Gilad Hexelman plays guitar, and Colin Stranahan plays drums. They've got two studio albums and a live album out, and John Raymond is my guest on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. I'm Phil Freeman, and welcome to the Burning Ambulance podcast. This is our 10th episode, so if you've been listening since the beginning, I'm extremely grateful to you, and even if this is your first episode, I'm glad to have you. Uh, You can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, and probably on any other podcast aggregator that you can think of. And if you want to support us on Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash burningambulance. John Raymond is originally from Minnesota, but he moved to New York a few years ago and started playing around and recording. Um, I've never heard his first album, but I heard his second and became a fan right away. It was called Foreign Territory. It's on the Fresh Sound New Talent label, and it featured Dan Teffer on piano. Joe Martin on bass and Billy Hart on drums. It was a real jazz jazz album. All the uh, all the songs were original compositions but they were based on jazz standards like I Hear a Rhapsody or How Deep is the Ocean and then Raymond would kind of re-harmonize them or change them in some other way. It was very sort of melodic hard bop stuff, very much a young musician's calling card slash statement of purpose. and. I feel like it got the job done in that regard. I liked it a lot, but he changed course right afterward and made what I think was a really smart creative choice. In 2016, he formed Real Feels, and it seems like this is where he's really blossomed as a musician and a leader. The band's first album had a bunch of interpretations of traditional songs like This Land is Your Land, Scarborough Fair, Amazing Grace, and the gospel song I'll Fly Away but there were also versions of Tom York's Atoms for Peace and the Beatles' song Blackbird. The whole point of the record, it seemed, was to present familiar melodies that would give people an easy entry point. They went out on the road, and they also recorded a live album, which was really good, and now they've put out their second studio album, which is a departure from what they've done before, in that this time half the music is originals by Raymond, and the other tunes are by people like Paul Simon, Bonnie Vere, and Peter Gabriel, and they're also signed to Sunnyside now, as opposed to the small label they were on before. So in this interview, uh, I talked to John about Real Feels and how it's evolving, about playing flugelhorn rather than trumpet, and what that gives and takes away in terms of the context of the band, um, about leaving New York to go back to the middle of the country, because he's now teaching at Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music, and uh, we talk about a lot of other things. So I think it's a really interesting conversation and I hope you'll agree. So at this point I'm going to play one more piece of music. This is Real Feels' version of Peter Gabriel's Salisbury Hill and then you'll hear my interview with John Raymond. So you're originally from Minnesota, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what brought you to New York? Kind of fill people in on your history.
1: Um, well, I uh, I came to New York in 2009, which was uh, essentially right after I finished my undergraduate degree at the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire. Eau Claire is kind of a small town, like an hour and a half away from Minneapolis. Um, they have a really great jazz department and a great trumpet teacher, which is kind of the main reason I went there. A lot of people know Eau Claire because it's now home of Boney Um And so, you know, it kind of gives you an idea of the sort of scene of musicians that are there and, and kind of working out of there and a lot of really cool stuff happening.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and yeah, I basically moved to New York in 2009 um, to go to grad school, uh, but, but really the... The goal was just to be in New York and kind of be immersed in the scene there. Um, that was kind of the whole reason I wanted to make the move. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you said you uh, you went to Eau Claire to study with a particular trumpet teacher. So when did you pick up the trumpet and, you know, what who, who was it that you were studying with and what, you know, what was your history with the instrument from that at that point?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I started when I was 10. Uh, I actually originally started playing piano first, and I was, I think, seven years old or so. Um, and story goes that uh, I wanted to do, I wanted to play jazz on the piano, which I don't really know where that came from, but it, but it definitely uh, happened. And my teacher was strictly a classical teacher, and she basically said, like, I, I don't know what to tell you. I can't teach you. So shortly after I started trumpet and realized that I could play jazz playing trumpet, um I stopped playing piano. <laughs> um <laughs> or at least stopped taking lessons. And um I had a bunch of really great trumpet teachers all throughout middle school and high school that um you know a lot of them were affiliated with like the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra or at one time in the Minnesota Orchestra or or things like that and just lots of great classical trumpet teachers. Um, I've really never had a jazz trumpet teacher. Um, and funny enough, I never really got, um, too into the scene here when I was growing up here. It was really that, that that all happened kind of after I left, Mm -hmm. um, that I started to kind of get into things here. But, but yeah, this, uh, this trumpet teacher at UW Eau Claire, his name's, um, Bob Baca. And he, um, I think to this day is, is, in my head, one of the best trumpet players in the world that nobody knows about because he um, he chose kind of a teaching career over a playing career to some extent, although he plays quite a bit still.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, but he's just, he's one of those uh, kind of mentor figures that you get in your life. You only have a few of them. And, um, you know, they they not only teach you Uh, like a really uh, deep and personal way of how to play the instrument uh, really well, but they also just impart a lot of life lessons and and that sort of thing to you too, and so he definitely fits the bill uh, with all that stuff, and still does for me.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: So once you got to New York, you know, you were at that point kind of seriously pursuing a career, so what was your first real gig in New York? The one that kind of made you think, wow, this is, this is actually happening. You know, I'm like a jazz musician now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was well, it's funny. I, I don't know if you really even want to call it a real gig. Uh, but I mean, I remember moving to town and for the first six or eight months I was there, I didn't have a single gig. Um, it was partly a maybe because I was in school and so I was trying to devote certain energy to that but I, I was spending a lot of time hanging and doing the jam session thing and and just trying to like meet people and and all that um but i didn't really have a lot together uh, i i had a lot of trumpet stuff together and i had a lot of um you know very like elementary jazz education together that i had basically done on my own and a lot of good tools but i didn't really have any like real world experience of how to actually make that sound good (laughs) Um, so it it took me a second and I uh, I remember some of the first gigs that I got on my own were at this Peruvian restaurant that closed down a a number of years ago but they would have um, they would have bands on the weekends and I uh, you know basically tried to book some gigs there and through that experience realized like you know this is not doing it for me. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: I definitely want, want something a lot more than this. Uh, that's not why I moved to New York was to play at Peruvian restaurants. Um, although everybody there was really great and really helpful, but yeah, that was kind of sort of the impetus for me to make a record and, and start, um, doing a handful of gigs. And I think the record release we had for that CD was at Cornelia street cafe. And that that show was really well attended and that that was kind of one of those things that I think initially gave me a lot of confidence just like yeah you know I I can do this this is what I'm cut out to do and um, this is what I want to do so Mm -hmm. I gotta stick to it so
0: yeah yeah and on the on the other side of that is there a gig that sticks out in your mind as your worst gig like not not in terms of a bad audience or you know oh, the music I'm playing you know isn't inspiring to me I'm talking about something where you really just ate it personally like as a player a show where you played something that still gives you nightmares
1: (laughs) you know there's one show actually that sticks out in my head it was a show at shapeshifter lab in Brooklyn and I think I, at that point, this might have been like 2012 or 2013, maybe 2013. And I had kind of drifted away from sort of this quintet instrumentation with guitar and piano and bass and drums and trumpet um, and had tried to do more of a quartet thing uh, where I was writing for piano and and bass and drums and myself. Mm-hmm. And... I just remember uh, feeling absolutely terrible the entire gig about the way I was playing, and clearly like overthinking it, and just not just getting way too in my own head about it. Um, and I remember coming home and being super down about it, and my wife had to like talk me off the ledge and be like, "It's okay, you're cool. You know, just stop thinking about it so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, stop." stop uh getting in your own own head about it um and usually when i even when i tell students like yeah you guys are going to have really bad gigs but you you're going to learn from them um that's like the one experience for me that i always think of for whatever reason
0: <laughs> yeah so <laughs> your uh your first album that you were talking about uh that was produced by john faddis and mm-hmm. your second album was produced by John McNeil, who I know from Hushpoint.
2: Mm-hmm. So yeah.
0: could you talk a little bit about what you got from each of those guys, like as one trumpeter to another and then more generally as a musician or just like as a person in the world? Because McNeil particularly has been around for a million years. You know?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. You know, I. I uh, was really fortunate to study a little bit with Faddis when I um, was in grad school at SUNY purchase and we actually only got like a semester with each other because he kind of took a sabbatical or something one of the semesters uh, but he uh, from the get-go was really really supportive of me writing my own music and recording it um, and there was one experience actually where I was I was submitting some cd to some competition or some i don't know something and i brought some some tunes into one of my lessons and he kind of said uh how are you going to record this and i said well i don't i don't know probably just put like a zoom recorder in a practice room you know like like a broke college student would do and um he said well no we we should do this in a studio and i kind of said okay and uh you know more or less he um he ended up paying for some studio time out of his own pocket for me to do this record or this do this little competition CD,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which really meant the world to me. Cause that was like, you know, the, my first six months in the city. Um, and here I have this, you know, like world-class musician who's willing to kind of like go out of his own pocket and clearly show some, some amount of belief in me. do this Um, and that was huge Um, and I think the other thing that I really got out of my time with him was just what a high standard he expected of me and what he expected of everyone um, in terms of I don't know just even like accuracy um, precision on the instrument and just always making the best musical choices um, and that really really stood out with him with mcNeil. gosh, there's so much to talk about with him <laughs> he uh i mean I think he's also one of those like master teachers and and improvisers that sort of gets caught under the radar sometimes um but his what what he does is so inventive and so rooted in the tradition of the music that uh, I think that's why I was drawn to it initially. Maybe I couldn't voice it that way, but um, that's why I was so drawn to him. And, and we, we got together a whole bunch before that record and had even just uh, before I, even that, that album was on the radar at all
2: mm-hmm.
1: and talked talked shop about a lot of things um, improvisationally and especially when we were working on the record and all the tunes for it. He, he really picked apart some of the tunes and did a lot with it, which really opened my eyes to, you know, how to be a great composer and arranger, um, to make, to do things that are, uh, on the one hand feel really good and, and have kind of a vibe to them, a very strong vibe. Um, and then at the same time do things that are unpredictable and catch people off guard and I think he's a master at that Uh, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. just walking through that whole experience with him was pretty pretty sweet
0: yeah yeah at the time of your debut album I've read this in other interviews with you you were sort of explicitly identifying as a Christian artist and I'm assuming that your faith hasn't faded in subsequent years, but you're not really emphasizing that side of your music as much now. So can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, I mean, maybe I'm totally yeah. off base here, but, you know. That's no, seem- no,
1: no, you're not off base at all. Um, I, I certainly am still a Christian. Um, I didn't really—I uh, guess I grew up in church, but I never really— uh, you know had a a real connection with my faith or or what i really believed um until maybe later in high school mm-hmm. uh, or early college and i think i think that first that first record i i look back on it and i see um i don't know like i think it's very typical that when when you're young you you want to make explicit everything that of who you are and what you're about and what you do and for good reason you know you You want to make this statement of this is who i am um in the fullest sense right Mm -hmm. and um i think that's why that particular record came out the way it did and why things are maybe a little more overt um but i think as i've kind of grown and matured i guess i've just appreciated um more of taking an approach i guess Maybe similar to somebody like C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you're familiar
2: mm-hmm. sure. with
1: his writing very much, but you know, like I look to him as an example of someone who had a faith that was incredibly strong and rich and permeated everything he did, and yet he wrote, you know, something like *The Chronicles of Narnia*, or a handful of other books like that that um, weren't, you know, had had kind of like Christian undertones and themes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um or biblical themes but but were really overtly there um and then in other things he wrote and other things he did, it was very much you know it was like theological um and I look at someone like him and and i i feel like I really identify with that and and i think I think just spending time in New York made me realize that um especially in the world today talking about faith and religion. I mean, it's obviously like a sort of a controversial thing, Mm -hmm. um, but it's also a very nuanced thing and it's really hard to express something so huge in a record or, or in one Facebook post or, you know, or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm, I've learned over the years that I think I want to embrace more of a, a long trajectory of this and more of a nuanced um subtle way of trying to communicate that and express that um, right right if that makes sense
2: yeah yeah
0: absolutely so on the second record foreign territory which is where i came in listening yeah. to your stuff that's basically your jazz jazz album Like you had Billy Hart on drums, you're reworking and reharmonizing jazz standards. It's very tradition-minded, sort of nerdy stuff. So, (laughs) so how was that record? No offense
1: taken, I promise.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, as a critic, I talk about trying to (laughs) get find jazz that appeals to you know normal people is the term that I use, which a lot of musicians hate, but I'm sure you totally understand it.
2: You know, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: So how was that record received within the New York scene, though, do you think? Since you were making this explicit, I'm a jazz guy, here's, the, you know, here's what I do kind of move.
1: That's a good question. I honestly don't know, uh, to, to be really frank. Um, I think for me, there was so much about that process of, of that record that it was really just me finding something in my voice as a player and as a writer that i don't even think was maybe the end goal you know or or maybe there isn't even an end goal (laughs) um but but it was a needed step in the process and i think working with john was a huge part of that and playing with those guys was a huge part of that and i was really glad to have received some like nice words from people including yourself about it um but when i look back on it i guess so much of it was it was this needed step for me in my evolution as an artist that that was the sole reason I did it, you know? Mm Um, and, and I guess to have an experience of getting to work with somebody like Billy, um, which I think up to that point, I really hadn't had the opportunity to play with someone on that level and kind of, um, you know, we did, we did some gigs after that, and went on the road a tiny little bit after that with that band and just that time with him is some of the most cherished time that I I've had that I can think of.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Mm -hmm. So I don't know, to be totally honest with you, Uh, I guess it really wasn't my intent to say, Hey, I'm a jazz musician. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was just that I I wanted to write some music that um, I, I think I realized in that record too if i remember right that you know i just i felt most comfortable playing over standard forms and standard changes and so that's where the whole idea kind of came in of having something that's related to that but is trying to push that in a different direction
2: yeah um, yeah
1: so i don't know I don't, I don't i don't even know if i answered your question at all But
0: uh <laughs> I think what's what's interesting to me is what you were saying about, you know, working with Billy Hart, because I've been watching Ethan Iverson play with him mm-hmm. recently in rec- you know in the past few years. Uh, I saw the two of them together at the Vanguard with uh, Houston Person, mm-hmm. and it was just a really interesting dynamic because, you know, Ethan is so obviously a devotee of the older players, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, they had, like... Uh, ben Street was the bassist, who's you know sort of Ethan's age, basically, you know, yep. and so it was a real combination of old and young that I thought was kind of interesting to observe, you know, yeah. and I'm I'm sure it must be an amazing thing to be the player in that situation.
1: Yeah, it really is. I mean, I I can share Ethan's giddiness or you know love for that sort of situation because you feel like every note you play you're just learning an incredible amount um, and there's nothing that replaces that you know it's, it's a pretty special a pretty special thing
0: so when you uh, when you put together real feels which is sort of the second which sort of feels like a whole second stage career sure. because now it's you know two, mm-hmm. two studio albums and a live album you know it's it's like a working band so was that always the thought that it was going to be a working band
1: to some extent yeah i mean i guess looking back on it i maybe i didn't expect that i would take it as far as i did in some respects but um or as far as i have but at the same time that's that's kind of how i do everything i either kind of go in all in or i don't go in and I think with this group, it's continued to feel really special, just the connection that we have and just the music that we're playing and, and the outlet. I think for me that I'm feeling with it to, you know, synthesize a lot of different interests and, and I don't know, musical influences, if you will, mm-hmm. um, that I don't really want to stop that. And, and it's been pretty pretty cool also to have the same feelings reciprocated from both Gilad and colin um and that's really that's helped me know that like this is this is something that we all want to do and we love playing music together and so there's a certain um yeah a certain special thing there that, that i i guess the more we do it the more the more i want to keep going with it mm-hmm. um, and keep keep the band working and, and play as much as we can yeah. record as much as we can
0: It's an unusual lineup. I mean, it's flugelhorn guitar and drums. So why no bassist? Was that a decision going in or did you have a bassist in mind and it never came together? I mean, what, uh,
1: you know, originally how it started was, um, well, I guess there were, there were a couple main influences for me, um, with the whole flugelhorn guitar combination. And one of them was the records art farmer and Jim Hall did together. Um, those I kind of discovered early on in my time in New York and there was something about that sound and arts playing and Jim's playing that was, they're so sensitive to each other, just like weave melodies weaving in and out of each other mm. that uh, I really loved. And then Ron Miles's band with Brian Blade and Bill Frizzell. Um, I really got into that music cause, too, uh and thought that instrumentation was really interesting, and I had some gigs and at some point that were trio gigs um, that they were they had to be strictly trio gigs, and I, I thought to myself like, well, I should just try this, and Gilad was an obvious choice for me because we played together so much, and so you know I kind of asked him to do it, and and realized shortly after we started doing something in that format that he was the perfect person for this kind of band because he has the facility on the instrument that not many people do Mm -hmm. um, to be able to kind of craft all these different lines happening at once. And and not just like, you know, me and him, but he can craft two or three lines at the same time just on his own, you know?
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And
1: so you get this incredible sense of... um, Polyphony happening I guess but you also get all these possibilities in terms of what could happen with the music because he's just so gifted in that way to be able to do that
2: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: so yeah it, it never really came about because uh, I couldn't find a basis or anything it was actually a, a pretty intentional decision mm-hmm. and the more we've done it the more possibilities like I said I, I feel like I've seen with it So,
0: mm-hmm. and the choice to play only flugelhorn and not trumpet also um, what does that give you creatively and what kind of you know limitations does it place on you in terms of you know harmony or whatever or anything else
1: yeah well I think for me that decision to do that was primarily because I I felt like uh, whenever I would play flugel and specifically whenever I would play ballads I felt like that's when my voice really i really felt myself um i remember even reading an art farmer interview where he talked about that where he he really noticed at some point in his career that he was a ballad player and that really changed a lot of how he played and just certain musical choices that he made and and one of the choices that he ended up did making or did make was to play flugelhorn you know Hmm. and i just felt like there was something about playing flugel that it kind of uh it removed a certain amount of effort that I have to concentrate on when playing trumpet to get the sound that I'm hearing in my head because I felt like the sound just came out instantly how I wanted it to on the vocal horn. Mm. And so I could really focus on like the notes that I was playing and the phrases that I was playing and focus more on the interaction that I had with Colin and Gilad or whoever I was playing with.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, they're definitely there definitely are some limitations to some degree because I, I can't, uh, I can't really cut through the band like a trumpet would, you know, we've done so many gigs where we'll come into a venue and they said, Oh, well you don't need a mic. And I said, no, I do need a mic. Um, (laughs) And it's because, you know, like these guys can bury me if they want to. And uh, I need to be able to, to hang in there when we get to loud stuff but i also just need to feel like more of a present part of the band sonically
2: because um,
1: yeah. it can it can get kind of lost because it's so dark mm-hmm. um so that makes it a little tricky i i think i think we have a tendency as a band to maybe play on the loud side sometimes which we're kind of working on um but yeah it can make it can make the decision to play flugelhorn something that you're you you like regret just for a second because you can't can't hang in that moment but
2: yeah
0: um, yeah I've noticed that when you're soloing Gilad is behind you but when he's soloing you step back completely and I'm curious Mm -hmm. why you make that choice because I mean you could certainly especially with the flugelhorn you could add some like long tones or really subtle things behind him in order to kind of stay in the conversation the whole time so I'm curious Mm -hmm. about the negotiation between the two of you?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think there there have actually been times where I have done more of that, and I really liked it. Um, and even on this newer record, and, um, you know, it's a lot of this new music that we're playing, it, it does lend itself to a, a little bit more of that. But part of the decision, at least for me, has uh, up to this point been really just like endurance chops related um just because i simply can't play the entire time
2: uh-huh.
1: like like he can um just because of the physical demands of the instrument but that's that's been the main reason um which again it's maybe a restriction you know
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: but it's but it's a restriction just playing trumpet in general so
2: yeah yeah something
1: i can't really avoid i guess
0: <laughs> and uh as far as Colin is concerned, like he's on the new record, he's playing a lot of non-traditional, not jazz rhythms on this thing. Like there's some stuff in there that's almost break beats basically, you yeah. know? And, and I've noticed a few drummers doing that lately, like Mark Giuliana and Vinny Speraza and, you know, a couple guys like that. And so I'm curious, you know, what you think about his approach to rhythm and how it, uh, you know, impacts the overall group sound.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is probably the material that we're playing is l- lending itself to being more in that direction, which is a conscious decision for me and something that I I, I think it's a direction that the band is going in in general. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's something that Colin and I have actually talked a lot about over the course of the last two years in terms of his role in the band and and just kind of what's happening in the music and that sort of thing, and you know, he has this really special ability to... I I always tell people he, he, to me, is kind of the glue in the band that holds Gilad and I together. He has this really natural feeling and sense of time, whether that's playing swing or whether it's not. It's very human, for lack of a better word. And so... You know, he has that, but he also has like a lot of, uh, I guess, for lack of, again, lack of a better word, but I guess he has a lot of chops mm-hmm. um, that you hear in certain contexts and you might not hear in other contexts because he, he simply is, he, he's such a great supporter that he, he doesn't demand attention a lot which is one of the reasons why I love playing with him is because I feel like there's this sense of, um, yeah, sense of support and not trying, not a, not a sense of like, I'm trying to take over the band. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I feel like even, even the things that he does that are along those lines that you mentioned, they really happen in such musical contexts where he's just making, I think really, really great choices, um, that's, that support what's going on. Um, and that's to me what makes it sound so great.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Now, the first, the first Real Feel's studio album, was it kind of conceptually what it had been in your head when the whole thing came together in terms of working with traditional songs and you know stuff like that? Like, was it all conceptually unified basically from day one, or did it come together mm-hmm. more slowly?
1: No, it was very slow, actually. Um, in fact, I mean, when we recorded, you know, a lot of the music really hadn't been fully realized, I think, at that point. I think it was more so that I just, again, I was like, a, you, you kind of follow your nose. Like I felt like I was doing with Foreign Territory. You know, I, I got into this thing where I was like, man, this pen is feeling great. We just need to record this. Um, and... I think it was only until we had really toured a lot when that record came out that we started to develop like a a really deep connection on that material but yeah it was it was a very slow process with that I I mean I remember recording all that music and just kind of thinking like okay well I don't know really what's here but um, I think it feels good so uh, (laughs) let's let's just go with that and and that was sort of um, the driving force behind it.
2: Yeah, know.
0: yeah, yeah. As you as you said, you went on the road. I mean, you guys did a pretty lengthy tour by jazz standards. So,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and by the time this airs, you're going to be out on the road again. So, yep. how mm-hmm. much time do you hope to spend on the road with the, with those guys this year uh, in 2018?
1: Well, let's see here. Um, I I guess we will be on the road sort of sporadically throughout the first half of the year. Um, We've got, I think, five dates together in January, um, seven or eight dates in February. Uh, We've got five days or so in April, and then eight days in May, and then we're going to Japan actually in June for 10 days. Nice. So that makes, let's see, you're probably talking 35 or 40 gigs by summer Mm -hmm. um which is a lot um but yeah like i said there's something so special with this band that um while the while the logistical work of it is a lot for me because i'm doing all the booking and logistics and tour managing and everything being able to kind of share this music and kind of have experiences with other people. Um, a part of it is I think is what made it has made it so special so
2: far. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm.
1: I suspect we'll do some more stuff in the fall as well. Um, but that's not really materialized at this point. So, yeah,
2: yeah. The,
0: uh, the first two records both came out on shifting paradigm, which is a Minneapolis label that describes itself, I think as a collective. So, what does that mean in real terms? Like, what was the business model, and what made them a good home for you?
1: Um, I guess the the business model for Shifting Paradigm is, um, I guess it's expanding a, a little bit at this point because um, other artists just outside of the Twin Cities are now part of the label and will be a part of the label. Um, but I, it started originally as, um, sort of a collective of maybe like a half dozen musicians in the twin cities who are all, you know, in my opinion, the most cutting edge musicians, if you will, if you want to use that word. Um, they're the musicians that are my favorite musicians. Uh-huh. If you want to go that way. And yeah, the label started like that. Um, is mainly run by one of those guys now. Um, and really for me it the the decision to kind of release the Real Fields records there was primarily just like a personal um a personal decision that sort of tied into why i have why i started the band in the first place was just because that we were playing music that was sort of music that i grew up with and it was it sort of felt like i was um, kind of returning home or something with that with that band and with that record that first record
2: mm-hmm. um
1: it just it felt so uh natural I guess, and so it it just seemed like a good fit for me to put it out on shifting paradigm and have it work like that and and it's a very artist friendly label, you know small independent label that gives um you know most of the royalties and that sort of thing to the artist and all the artistic control to the artists, and so I was really interested in that too.
0: Yeah, yeah. So then, what did Sunnyside offer that you decided to make the leap for this next record?
1: Um, well, you know, I think I, I've heard a lot of great things from friends of mine that have done records for Sunnyside about Francois and Brett and everybody there, and um, so that helped. You know, I, I think just knowing that you're working with people that really care and, and people that I think have proven over a number of years to have a really successful label, like independent label, um, meant something to me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think, you know, one of one of the goals for me in the next few years is uh, I haven't really toured in Europe yet as a band leader. And so, you know, I know that um, Francois being French and, and kind of the European connections um, that the label has, um, i'm hoping to kind of get this band over to europe sometime soon right um, and thought that would help and yeah just i, I think generally the the exposure with being on a, a label that has a little more clout um always helps you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so that was probably another factor too
0: yeah yeah so are you planning on a second live record because i mean I so many artists call something, you know, whatever it is, volume one, and then nine times out of ten there's never a volume two. So I feel like it's gotta be a commitment that you've you've gotta be held to. So when can we expect volume two?
1: Yeah, I like mean maybe I, after Japan. Yeah, well my my hope is that, you know, through all this touring um in early twenty eighteen that I I've gotta work it all out here, but I wanna get as many recordings of Shows we do as possible, um, and then see if I can put something together.
2: Uh-huh. Um, that's definitely <laughs> the
1: goal. Uh, right. I think for me also, you know, wh- I've realized even more with this record. While while I'm really happy with how it came out, um, this band is such a live band. Um, it's it's something that's a totally different animal when you when you experience it and, and are there together in person and you know there's something so special about live records like that you you get this sense that you're in the room and that sort of intimacy is something that I think I really crave and thrive on with this band so it makes total sense to me it's just a matter of logistically figuring out how to make it work
0: yeah yeah now the uh, the first record was almost entirely outside pieces and this time you've struck a much more even balance five of the 10 pieces are yours and then four of them are rock songs and there's one traditional piece so do you think that that may be the path forward like a more even balance of material
1: I think to some extent yeah I definitely have really enjoyed excuse me really enjoyed writing for the band and um, like I said I feel like to me, it's it's like my outlet at this point to synthesize all these different kinds of music that I love and different influences that I have. So yeah, I think it'll definitely be more um, similar to this uh, in the future, um, to some extent.
2: You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I
1: think I, I I've I've looked at uh, obviously being from Minnesota, I've looked at a band like The Bad Plus as a really great model and example of. Um, you know, I I think the uh, th- that that band has never been tied to doing one thing, originals or covers or anything. You know, they might be known more for certain things, but they they do what musically feels right. I think, and I think that's kind of the the uh, or at least a model for me that I look at and am inspired with thinking about this band.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: Now, has covering all these songs changed the way you write? I mean, are you writing tunes that are more like songs than they are jazz compositions, which are like just a head melody and some chords? Are you more interested in structure?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think uh, I've really had a strong attraction the last couple years of just writing great songs, like you said. Um, Or even just playing great songs like that. Um, Paul Simon, I Do It For Your Love is is like a great example of something that it's just a great it's a great tune, you know, Um, and uh, or or even something like Be Still My Soul. uh, You know, it's just such a beautiful melody and sort of an iconic melody. And, uh, you know, sometimes it doesn't even need improvisation in the sense that maybe we have grown up thinking of it as as in head solo's head, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think I think this music has definitely had an influence on that Mm -hmm. um, as well as, you know, just like the other music that I listen to and I'm interested in. So,
0: yeah, yeah so i noticed also that on this record you used this you used the studio more i mean there's some multi-tracking on the horns and Gilad mm-hmm. is also doubling up on a few pieces so talk to me about you know working with matt pearson and producing this record more than the first real feels which was very much you know three guys in a room
1: yeah well i think that the challenge with this one was uh, you know how can we retain the element of that or just the reality that this band is a three-person band um and there's a sort of intimacy that comes with that and also try to add things and add layers to the music that um support that chemistry and support that connection but don't take away from it Mm -hmm. Um, and that was sort of the goal is like okay what what songs are we hearing that we can add some other Layers on top of, um, some of it is happening live because both Gilad and I, uh, but specifically him, um, we're using loop pedals, and so, you know, like he'll he'll loop a, a bass line or loop a set of chords, and then be able to solo on top of it, or I'll be able to kind of loop certain kind of ambient effects or even certain like notes and that sort of things. And and I'm actually using like a pedal rig myself now when I'm, when we play live that I'm able to add notes and add delay and I'm able to loop things and that, that sort of thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I think it's, you know, the goal has been to just try to like broaden the, I guess the base of texture that we're able to add to the band, but try to do that in a really, Thoughtful way, and not, not where it just kind of gets out of hand
0: or anything. Yeah, yeah. So, now you uh, you have left New York, moved back to the Midwest, and you're teaching, right?
1: Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: So, I mean, obviously, that you know, I remember you announced that on Facebook, and we're very excited by the offer, and you know, and the the career change, and all that kind of stuff. But was there any part of you that you know as a jazz musician leaving New York was there any part of you that was thinking oh man I guess I had my run but this is it
1: (laughs) you know I think there's always that thought in the back of your head Um, or at least that was for me I mean you definitely wonder um, and you you yeah you kind of think like well I don't I don't know what's gonna happen now but I think that was very much a minor thought for me and it was I think that was partly because I felt the job felt like the right fit and the situation that I wanted to be in from myself, but also for my family. Um, and, you know, I, I at some point had a realization that the thing that I'm pursuing the most as an artist are bands that I lead mm-hmm. um, or bands that I have a, a very strong say in what, what happens. And I can do that from anywhere. I can book tour dates living in Indiana, and still, um, you know, get all over the country with Gilad and Colin, and and you know, do that with any other band that I want to as well. It's really just a matter of initiative, you know. Uh And so I think once I realized that, I any fears that I thought of of like, oh, gonna gonna hang it up, you know. (laughs) I mean, any, (laughs) any thoughts like that were kind of out the window because it was like okay you know this is just uh, this is the the best step for i think me and my career and and my family and and it also just sets me up to have more mental and emotional space frankly to like devote towards the things that i want that i want to have in my life you know
2: yeah yeah um,
1: which new york is very difficult like that and as i'm sure you know like it's just like it's hard to create that space. Um, mm-hmm. So to just to be able to have that in Indiana has been... It's, it's already paying off a lot for me.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, obviously the geographical distance has an impact on the band in the sense, like, you know, you can't really do much in the way of rehearsal, you know, mm-hmm. beyond like a few days before a tour or something like that, I would imagine, you know, mm-hmm. so so what is what are the logistical issues in in that sense
1: yeah exactly what you said uh the lack of rehearsal um which frankly we've we've never been a a band that's rehearsed a lot anyways Mm. um we've always kind of figured it out on the gig um which has been challenging but also really fun
0: it doesn't really feel like a sheet music on the stage kind of a band anyway no
1: yeah no it's definitely i feel like this band is much more of like an experience based thing where we have to we have to go through it and you know play together to realize what needs to happen musically to make it better yeah um i mean one one of my goals with the band actually uh in the nearest future is I want us to be able to play all this music without any anything written. I think we're at that point it's just a matter of committing to it and kind of making that step, but yeah that's like how real bands do it you know you don't see Radiohead up there with sheet music (laughs) or you know whatever Uh Um, or again the Bad Plus is a great example of of a band that can play like hard material but they've committed it to memory and and that's I mean frankly it's actually a thing of like Minnesota bands in general Um, I don't know I'm not sure if you're familiar with Happy Apple
0: um, I know the name Happy
1: Apple and a bunch of different bands that Dave King has Um, And then a handful of other bands here all function without music, and you just, you learn it, and that's just how it goes, you know. Uh Yeah, there's a certain, like, visual presentation that it has, but it also, I think, commits that music more to your memory and psyche than, than it would just reading it, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I guess my last question is, what are you able to carry over from being a professional touring musician to teaching high school students? Like, do you have kids that you know want to make music their life, and can you mentor them at all, or, you know, do they even care? Are you just Mr. Mm-hmm. Raymond, the music teacher?
1: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm actually not teaching high school anymore. Um, I'm teaching at Indiana University, so I'm
0: Oh okay. only
1: working with undergrads and grad students. Okay. Um which is uh has been great. Um, and I found even in just my first semester that I I can tell that these students are really itching to have conversations about this sort of thing and this sort of thing being just like working as a as a musician, you know, and making a living as a musician. Um they, they want to know stories. They want to know how you did this or that. And they want to hear about playing with this musician. And um, I feel like I get like many interviews all the time (laughs) from different (laughs) students. And that just, I think is a sign that, you know, one, they're, they're eager and they want to learn and they want to understand. And, and for me, I feel compelled to tell them everything I know. You know, I, I don't see any reason to hold anything back because it's not like it's private information. You know, mm-hmm. um, it certainly uh, wasn't that way for me. You know, and I, I think um, the more informed I can help them be about the music that they want to learn and kind of the career that they're going into, obviously the better off they'll be. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I feel like the more musicians particularly in in your sort of age bracket you know because you're probably what are you in your late 30s
1: no uh 32 actually 32 okay so
0: you're you're actually way younger than me even so because i'm 46 so okay but uh but i feel like you know musicians in in your age group can really help younger players because older guys still remember an industry and a scene that doesn't exist anymore
2: Yeah,
0: you know mm-hmm. and so the idea of you know playing any place that you can think of to play rather than saying okay this city has two jazz clubs when can we get into one of them you know mm-hmm. that kind of thing the real sort of street level assertive bookings and and things like that that's the kind of thing that needs to be passed on to the next generation of players, I think.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree. And I've even told a lot of peers of mine back in New York when I've talked to them or uh, I was back in town about a month ago for a few days. And, you know, I've been telling people that, like, you know, there are going to be opportunities for us being people in kind of my generation or, or around there going to be opportunities and and there already are starting to be opportunities for us to have these sort of positions to be able to do that because there is such a need for what you're saying and um, like I said I, th- I think I sort of suspected it would be that way before I even got the job ab- about a situation like this at, at Indiana but I w- it's been totally confirmed you know um, it's 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 pretty necessary and, and we have a, a unique way or a unique opportunity I think to be able to kind of pass that on um, to students who are kind of entering that same scene that we have trying to or like tried to cut our teeth in, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So,
1: yeah, I totally agree.
0: And I feel like there's there's a new audience emerging right now, you know, I mean in sort of I guess what has to be called the post Kamasi era. Mm. you know (laughs) there's definitely like younger people at shows you know there's Mm. people expressing an interest in the music just in general that you wouldn't expect before and so to do something like what you're doing with you know bringing in rock songs and things like that no longer feels like you're winking or pandering or anything it's just (laughs) you know you know what i mean
1: yeah totally (laughs) Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's been interesting to talk to these students at Indiana and, you know, hear from them. Like, I think I asked, I I took a bunch of the trumpet players on kind of a field trip to go see a a show in Chicago. And um, as we were driving up there, I was like, okay, just give me a give me a consensus here. Like, what how how do you get exposed to new music? What platform do you listen to? You know, whatever. And every single person says Spotify. It's like, okay, well, I think I expected that, but at the same time, that's just a sign that, like, you know, stuff is changing, and and they're they're into probably more a more variety of music than I ever was at that age, um, because they simply have more access to it.
2: Mm-hmm. So, yeah,
1: yeah, it's 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 hopefully then being able to take something like that and then channel it for them where they can actually tangibly express all those influences themselves you know yeah i I, I totally hear you (laughs) that's uh it's an exciting part about what the job is for me
2: and Mm -hmm.
1: um well i'm you know i'm really
2: grateful for that opportunity yeah yeah
0: Okay, that was my interview with John Raymond, and that's the end of this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll come back for the next one.